welcome to our verse-by-verse -verse journey through Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew serves as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In this Gospel, Matthew seeks to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. For those of us who aren't Jews, Matthew helps us to see our Savior King more clearly and through his gospel, learn to live well in his, in Christ's kingdom today. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the gospel of Matthew, and let's learn about our Savior King and his kingdom. Ready? Set, go. Let's go. <laughs> Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18 as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Before we get into it, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you, Lord, for this place. Lord, and we thank you, Lord, for the the blessing that it is, we pray, Lord, that um, you would use it, continue to use it for your glory. And Lord, as we take this time now and we sit at your feet, Lord, we pray that you would help us to still our hearts, Lord, from the stuff of life, stuff that um, is important to us, and that we need a moment where we can just rest in you. And so I pray for that peace and that calm that, that you are able to provide us so that we can hear from your Holy Spirit. And we lift it up to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text for this morning takes place right after Jesus did the miracle of the coin in the fish's mouth. <clears throat> Pretty radical miracle. Let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, what's not obvious in this is the real question they were asking is, which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This seems to be a regular conversation that the disciples were having, and uh, it is a reflection of human nature. Even on the evening that Jesus was betrayed, they were still talking about this, even after Jesus explains it to them a couple of times. In Luke 22, verses 24 through 26, says this, Now there was also a dispute among them. Not just talking about it, they're arguing about it. Which of them should be considered the greatest? And he, Christ, said to them, the disciples, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise lordship over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. So very often as we study through the gospel, we study through the Bible, we see this kind of this upside down kind of reality to the things of God. They're not, they, they're not the same as the way that we as humans think of them often and the way our human nature relates to some of these things. Remember that Jesus had done, just done the miracle of the coin in the, in the, in the mouth of the fish for Peter. 
You know, Peter was the primary um, participant in that. You know, and the question I think that, that some are asking maybe is, does that mean that Peter is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We, know, we all know that they, we all presume that they know that Jesus is the actual greatest. But among them, you know, is Peter, he gets a special attention, is he the greatest? And remember that this was not the only miracle that Peter was engaged with. Peter walked on water. Peter, you know, you know, there are lots of things that Jesus did with Peter specifically. And then there's James and John. They thought they, thought they were pretty amazing too. At one point, asking to have the very best seats in the kingdom of heaven. In Mark 10, 35 says this, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Man, I wish I had that boldness. Tell God, you're going to do whatever I want, God. Whatever I ask you, that's what you're going to do. It doesn't work like that. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. That, that is the, the preeminent seats in the kingdom of heaven. It's a claim that we are worthy of that. We are great enough, Jesus, to sit in those two places. Wow. Now, there is something that is hardwired into the human psyche, into the human reality, and that is greatness. Remember, we were made in the image of God. Is God great? Yes. Yes. How great? He's all the way great. Well, however you can describe great, that's what God is. And if we're made in the image of God, then there's something about that that, that is also reflected in the way that God made us. He made us for greatness. One problem, sin. Sin happened. And everything that God put in us for his glory got corrupted. And so the reality that God made us for greatness and put within us this desire for greatness for his glory got corrupted. And now is, is we, we now seek glory not for God. We seek greatness not for God, but for whom? Rick, not for you, Rick. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And, and the Bible teaches us that if we want to be great, we need to become like him. We need to be like him. If he is the greatest and we want to reflect that greatness, we do it by being like him. And the more we become like him, the greater we become in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus responds to this request, this question, this self-centered, self-exalting question with a practical illustration in verse 2. Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Surely I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom 
of heaven. He starts by saying, okay, if you want to be great in heaven, the very first thing you got to be is converted. And that makes, that makes good sense if you think about it. If you're going to be, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you got to actually be a part of the kingdom of heaven, right? You have to be converted from the way that you were as an unsaved, lost, degenerate, unregenerated, nothing. Now, that's not actually a good way of saying that, but it's what came out of my mouth. Um, you got to be saved and be one of God's people. That's the first step. We have to convert from our previous unsaved state to a state that can actually enter the kingdom. That's the only way to start being to, for that, to get on that pathway towards greatness. Jesus said something similar to Nicodemus in John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Not most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you're going to get into the kingdom, you have to go through this, this regeneration, this rebirth. But I also want you to catch that second phrase there where he says, and become like little children. We gotta, this is the part I think we often forget. This is the part I think we sometimes miss when we're going through this process of, of, of being believers in Christ. As we, as we, as we, you know, we get saved and, and we recognize there's a reality to the greatness of God and we reflect the greatness of God and so there's this reality that we should be great for God and, and all of that is true, but there's a way to do it that is very specific and it's this idea of becoming like little children and this is not an event. Conversion is an event. It happens once and it's done. This becoming a little, like little children is not an event. It's a process. We have another name for it. We call it sanctification. Once someone is saved, they start changing. As a matter of fact, if someone doesn't start changing after they get saved, you've got to ask the question, are you actually even saved? There's a pro when, we, when the Holy Spirit comes in, he is the Holy Spirit. What is, he, what is he leading us towards? Holiness, which is different than what you were before you got saved. And so there must be change taking place. And that change is Christ-likeness. We should be conform, being conformed and shaped and molded into the likeness of Christ. And Jesus would say to us that if he draws this little child, probably three, four years old, into his, in, you know, to him, it's a whole message for children in that thing, but that's not the main theme. The main theme is what we're talking about today. The, the idea that, that you, you, have to, you have to view the world and behave in the world like Christ would. And, and the, 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 the thing that goes against common logic or, or common knowledge is the more mature you become in your faith, the more childlike your faith ought to be. The more simple it is, the more you start saying things like, well, the Bible says it, so I believe it. I don't have to understand it. I don't have to understand the theology. I don't have to understand, you know, the, you know, the history, the, all these things. I, I just like, you know, okay, this thing happened in my life. Okay, well, it happened. Why? I don't know. I don't care. It just did. 
And your faith becomes much simpler. The more mature you become, the more you know about God, the more you know about the kingdom of God, the more simple your faith becomes. It's a glorious thing. Jesus then describes to us the key characteristic of childlike faith in verse 4. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And we got we to pause and think about the disciples. If you go through the disciples and look at their, who they were and all the different things about who the disciples were, they weren't really <laughs> that big of a deal. Fishermen, there's a tax collector. Nobody liked a tax collector. There was, there was a zealot. There, I mean, there were like all kinds of just different people. But there was nothing really special about them. What made them think that they were great in the kingdom of heaven? Well, they were with Jesus. And being with Jesus resulted in them doing great things. Right? Remember, at one point, how many of the disciples did miracles? Anybody know? All of them. All of them. They did miracles, and not just one or two, lots of them. I'm kind of thinking, if you're doing miracles, you know, casting out demons, raising the dead, healing people, I mean, all this stuff, it kind of fills your head, right? Is that possible? I know, I know, probably only one side of the room, don't point, but, you know, the reality, you know, that, that we might get a big head over something like that. We might think we're pretty good, we're pretty awesome, Hey, just the fact that Jesus told, chose 12 men out of all the people that followed him, he only chose 12 to be his closest companions. Well, that makes me pretty special, pretty great. It could have led them to this false idea of greatness. Jesus says, Whoever humbles themselves, that person will be great. Oh. Humble himself. We must acknowledge first off that he is, he is saying you must deliberately choose to humble yourself. It's an act of the will. Now, it's enabled by the Holy Spirit, but you must choose it. God can and will humble us if we need it, right? Somebody say, Lord forbid. I don't ever want to be in a place where the Lord has to humble me. You know why? Because he's going to break something. He's going to break something big, and it's going to hurt. You don't want that. But his desire is that we would choose to humble ourselves. In 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7 says, that, Therefore, humble yourselves. Again, the same idea of humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in, in due time, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. This is one of these upside-down truths of the faith. You know, for us, we think, you know, very often from a worldly perspective, we think, okay, if you're going to be great, you've got to act great. 
If you're going to be big, you got to act big. If you're going to be famous, you got to act famous. And that's how, that's how the world thinks. Here, he's saying greatness is achieved through humility. Now, humility is a very contrary act in a human heart. It is not something that is natural. It is something that your natural flesh will resist and fight and scream and demand it end immediately. The idea of humility is choosing to esteem yourself last. Putting someone or something before you. Now, the way, the order that it ought to work is God first. That we put God first, we think of God's first, everything that comes up in our lives, every attitude, every thought, every choice, every decision, God, what, what does God want? What does God think? What, what does God feel about whatever this thing is? We put him first, we, just, we consider him first. And then second, we consider others. How does this affect others? How does this, this choice, this decision, this, this thought, whatever it might be, how does it affect others? And then, after I've considered God, I've considered others, then I consider myself. But I must be last. That's humility. Putting yourself last. It fights against every bit of who we are. Now, there's a, there are examples in, in reality, in life, See Jamie back there with the baby, you know, that is, you know, there's, there's a lot of humbling of yourself when you're caring for a child. You put yourself last very often to care for a child. Problem is if, if, you, have, if you get outside of those more natural ones and you have to start doing it with people that, you know, are kind of obnoxious, <laughs> kind, of, kind of, you know, you know not kind or, or whatever, you start trying to put them above, you know, before you, it's hard. But that's what greatness is. Greatness is saying it doesn't matter. I don't matter in this. God first, other second, me last. And you know what we believe? If you believe God, if you believe what God's word says, you, you can do that because you know God will not leave you without. I'm going to put God first, I'm going to put other second, and I trust God to take care of me. I don't have to worry about me. I don't have to put myself first. If I humble myself, it says here, Peter says <clears throat> that if I humble myself, God will exalt me. God will lift me up. And so I just wait for him to do that. What if he, does, what if he never does? Well, he's, he is going to eventually when he sets you in his kingdom in heaven. You will get crowns. You will get rewards. You will get all that stuff. You don't have to worry about it in this life. And he, oh, you may do it in this life too. But you don't worry about that. As we grow in humility, considering ourselves less and less, the greater we become in the kingdom of heaven. It is one of those weird things that goes contrary to human nature. You humble yourself more and more. You become greater and greater in the kingdom of heaven. At the same time, as we grow in humility, we care less about greatness. The whole, the whole question of greatness becomes irrelevant to us. It doesn't matter. I would like to say it doesn't matter to me that about greatness. That's still a work in progress. 
We're still working on that. We, all of us are still working on that to some degree. You know, that desire, of, you know, that, that, that constant battle of putting ourselves out there, putting ourselves forward. Maybe at the expense of someone else. Maybe at the expense of God. If we do truly seek to be great in the kingdom of God. And, and I think there, there should be an aspect of the desire of, being, of seeking the greatness of God by seeking you know, greatness in the kingdom of God by humbling ourselves in, in the way that the Bible teaches us to do it. Not false humility, but real true humility, putting myself last. If we do that and God, and God does what God's gonna do, then we just, we just don't, it just doesn't matter to us if we're, if we're considered great. We stop caring about that. If God is great, if, God, if people look at, at me and see God is great, hallelujah. That's what I'm going for. Jesus continues with a warning that we don't want to miss. Verse 5. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me, but Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to the man, to that man by whom the offenses come. Now, now the, the most literal interpretation of the phrase little ones is children. That's the literal, most literal interpretation, but it's not the only interpretation. Another interpretation of it, and a very valid one, is it refers to those who are marginalized, those who are, are less than. That's the, that's the basic idea, is less than or smaller than. It could refer to those who are less mature or immature in their faith. They lack something like little children little children are not mature in their faith you recognize that right a little child has no maturity in their faith don't don't abuse them don't misuse them don't lead them to sin and like little children those who are not mature in their faith are vulnerable to those who would Deceive those who would abuse, those who would mistreat. And, and the warning here is uh, <laughs> don't do that. There's a horrible reckoning coming, coming to those who would do that. As mature believers, we have a responsibility to help people. I'm pointing at myself like I'm a mature believer. I, I, okay, I'm going to, okay, I'm going to, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I'm a mature believer. I've been around long enough. I'm going to call myself a mature believer because I'm old as dirt. That's not, the how it, that's not how it works. But as mature believers, meaning, meaning okay, our faith is pretty well established. It's well developed. It's, it's, and it's still growing. We have responsibility to help those whose maturity is not the same as ours. To help the little ones whether they be children or believers whose faith is immature or not as fully developed as ours. We have a responsibility to protect them from those who would take advantage of them and to guide them until they become mature. 
And if as mature believers, someone causes one of Christ's little ones to stumble into sin, it'd be better to die a horrible death than to face Christ and, and, and how he will deal with that. This may also be suggesting that someone who claims to be a believer and then leads less mature Christians to sin, or it can also be applied to abusing children, will face a horrible judgment, and I think that's valid. That, there's, that, that those who do things to children, there are things that are done to children that, that are just unspeakable. And, and we should do as, as, as just humans, we should do everything possible to stop those kinds of things. And we can't stop it all. But we can rest in the reality that God, there is a, there is a judgment coming for them that is, that is pretty horrific. Jesus then goes on to say something that he said before. Verse 8. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. This is a warning to take sin seriously. You know, we, you know, every now and then you know, I minister to somebody and, they'll, and they'll, they'll confess to something and then they'll just shrug their shoulders and say, but you know, no, I don't know. How can you shrug your shoulders and, 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 and suggest that, well, you know, it's just the way that I am. He said, we ought to take it seriously. Now, he's not telling us to maim ourselves or to, to cut out our eyes because our hands and our eyes and our feet, they are just tools. That, that they don't lead us to sin. They're just the tools that, that, that are engaged in sin, but it's the heart that sins. It's the heart that has a problem. And we ought to take it seriously that when we're, when we're doing something or we're thinking about something, we ought to take it seriously. He's using extremes, and it's a, a form of, of, of literature to use these extremes to illustrate a point saying this is how bad how bad God thinks about this God hates sin how much does God hate sin a, a, a lot he created a whole place just to send those people who love sin to you know where they can spend eternity separated from him This is not suggesting that believers can go into everlasting fire. But he's using these extreme to tell us this is how God feels about it. And we as believers ought to feel the same way about sin that God does. We ought to hate it. And we ought to go to whatever lengths it takes to avoid it. Whatever that means. Whatever sacrifice it takes. Whatever, whatever price it costs you to avoid sin Pay it. Because the consequences of not doing it are even higher. Jesus then addresses our attitude toward those who may not be as spiritually mature as we are. Verse 10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. 
For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. If you remember back, if you remember back to Matthew chapter 7, it was only like six months ago. Jesus said that we're not to judge others, right? We do, we do remember that. Jesus said don't to judge people. In Matthew 7, 1 and 2, judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Listen, the idea of despising somebody is the idea of, of, of judging them as either being unworthy or beneath you, or some other way. It's an act of judgment. To despise is to look at them and to, and to see them as less than. Less than you, primarily. But to see them as less than. And, it's, and it, is, it is an unworthy thing to believers. This week, Kelly and I watched Aurora and Harvey, our, our grandchildren, and we played dominoes after dinner. And, you know, you know it, it's, it, dominoes is not a complicated game. But there is a little bit of strategy to it. Well, Harvey is six. And we first started playing. His idea of how you play is you stack them up and build little things with them. Or you put them in a row and knock them down so you can hear the sound it makes. That was his idea of dominoes. Now, I could have despised him for his lack of understanding and experience with the game of dominoes. Or I could help him to learn how to play. He ended up in second place <laughs> out of four of us. And no, I didn't win. Kelly did. Just so you know. Every believer matters to God. Every one. And yes, we are all in a different place spiritually. Some more mature than others. There may be believers around you who are stacking up spiritual things and then knocking them down just to hear what they sound like. They're not very mature in their faith. They're not doing things the way you think they ought to do them. They're not, they're not getting it like you get it. They may be struggling with something that you mastered a long time ago. Something you got it going on and they don't. Maybe you know a lot more about the Bible than they do. Maybe you've read it twice. You're an expert. Maybe you watched a couple YouTube videos. Three YouTube, three, two, three YouTube videos will make you an expert on anything. Listen, don't roll your eyes at another believer because somehow they're not where you are spiritually. That's despising them. And it's wicked and wrong. Try to imagine if Jesus did that to you. How would you feel? Because you know he's a little more mature in his faith than you are. Compared to Jesus, we are all spiritually immature by miles, millions of miles. We should never despise another believer. We should always be seeking to help them to grow 
in gentleness and kindness and humility, recognizing that that was probably us at some point. Till you are perfect, we are all still working to become as little children, little ones. Still developing that childlike faith, that simple faith. Now, I think simple faith is very knowledgeable of the things of God, of the kingdom of God, of the word of God. But it's simple. There is a reference here to angels um, in the presence of God. And, and so it, it's another one of the things kind of leads to the notion of the idea of guardian angels. We're not, it's not the topic of the message, so, you know, talk to somebody else about it. You may have an angel right there on your shoulder. It's enough to say that God knows. He knows how we're treating others, especially how we're treating those less mature than we are. He knows. And there's an attitude that he's looking for in us, and that attitude is humility. That childlike faith that will humble itself, will consider others before ourselves. If you're despising someone, you are not considering them above yourself before you. You're considering yourself before them. And it's wrong. God knows. This section closes with Christ telling us why he came. Verse 11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. This will lead into the, the, um, the lost sheep. We'll get into that next week, Lord willing. Mankind was created in the image of God. Every one of us was created in the image of God to be a reflection of his glory out into the world. So no matter who we are, no matter where we are, no matter spiritually we are, mature, immature, young, old, whatever way you want to describe yourself, you were created to, to reflect God's glory out to the rest of the world. The problem we have is sin has separated us from God, has made it so that that reflection is corrupted and marred. Jesus came, came to make a way for us to be reunited with God so that we might do that work that, that brings us back into that place where we can experience God's glory, but then also reflect it out to others. And once we have been reunited with God the Father, Jesus would have us join him in his mission to save the lost in the world. And it begins when we're converted. Now I'm guessing that as I look across this room that probably all of us can't tell everybody who's watching online. I can't tell at all. I know they're there. But as we once we've been converted, then there's this process. We have to continue growing to be his children, to be childlike in our faith, simple faith. I believe, God, I believe. The text began with the disciples wanting to know which one of them was the greatest in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. As usual, it's the wrong question. 
We're all good at that. We're all really good at asking the wrong questions. But I love Jesus' response. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't despise them for their ignorance, for their immaturity. He uses it an opportunity to teach them about the kingdom of heaven. It's a powerful lesson for us. And when we're around those people that are, that are acting immature, they're stacking up those spiritual dominoes and knocking them down, and we're looking at them and saying, that's a little noisy, it's a little disruptive, it's a little immature. Remember, Jesus loves them. Jesus bled for them. Jesus died for them. Jesus forgave them. Jesus forgives them. And he wants us to love them. But to do that, we must walk in childlike faith, in, in growing humility, putting them first and ourselves last. Not worrying about us. Don't worry about you. Your God loves you. How much your God love you? Enough to send his son to die for you. Enough to give you the Holy Spirit to lead and guide you. Enough to provide for you any way that he can. Jesus took this opportunity to teach them, and we should do the same. Anytime we have an opportunity to share Christ with someone or to share some biblical truth with them, we should, but we gotta be very careful. Don't do it arrogantly. Don't do it pridefully. Don't say, you pathetic Christian. I know somebody's thinking it, but they may not be saying it. No. Gentleness, humility, kindness, mercy, grace. These are all the characteristics of Christ and they should come out in every encounter we have with other believers. We don't give them a hard time because they, they're not as mature as we are as, or as mature as we think they should be. Listen, take a moment, look around the room. Look around, I'm serious, look around. Listen to me, look around. These people, these people, you'll be spending eternity with. They are all brothers and sisters. Jesus loves every last one of them. Whether, they be, whether, they, whether they're playing with spiritual dominoes or they're playing with the deep things of God. And we ought to be loving them and encouraging them and strengthening them as much as we're able to do as long as we can. Brothers and sisters, and I know, I know, I'm guessing, well, there's a couple of you might be competing to see who's the greatest in the kingdom, but, you know, for the most part, you know, we know, we know who we are. I know who I am. We shouldn't be competing to see who's the greatest. We ought to be helping each other to be humble. We, we, ought to be, we ought to be encouraging each other towards Christ-likeness. And that means not, not despising them, not looking down upon them, not, not being critical and, and unkind to them, but being, being loving to them in every way possible. Always putting God first, them second, and yourself. Don't worry about you. Don't worry about you. Let God deal with that. He's pretty good at it, Right? Somebody say yes. God's good at that. 
Worship team is going to come back up if they heard me. If not, Nate's going to come up and play the rain stick for us. And we're going to pray. And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to give us that childlike faith. But again, I want you, I want you to remember something. He's, he's, he also said that we must humble ourselves. We must make a conscious decision to be humble. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to help us with that. And as a final thought, while, while the, the, the illustration centered around a child, the main, the main issue was this, this aspect of faith and humility. One of the best places to learn what childlike faith looks like is around children. And so, you know, I don't know where your heart is. I don't know what the Lord might say to you, but helping out in the children's ministry is a great place to learn how, what childlike faith looks like. So if you have any questions on that, thoughts on that, desire in that, see David. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come and thank you for this, your time. We thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. And as we've talked about this idea of childlike faith, Lord, it's, 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 it's really counterintuitive to us. Let's be honest. Well, we'll be honest with you, God. We, we, we struggle with it because everything in us, every, every deep down inside, there is a desire for greatness. And while the original intent of that greatness is so that you could be shown as great, so that we could reflect your greatness there's a part of us that, that wants to be great for me. And so I pray, Lord, help us to, to humble ourselves, to, to put you first and others second and ourselves. Lord, just to put our, just don't, not even to consider ourselves in these things. That when we have to, when we come to these places, these choices, these decisions, that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't concern us what it, what it means for me. But what does it mean for you, God? What does it mean for them? And am I able, am I able to glorify you in this thing? So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to get to that place. Help us to move in that direction, that, that childlike faith continues to grow, where we simply believe. I know, God, that you want us to, to be mature in our faith, but mature faith is childlike faith. And while that's counterintuitive, it is, it is true. And Lord, we need you to help us to see that and to understand it and to resist those temptations to prideful responses to, to others who may not be where we are spiritually. Lord, despising anyone because, they, because their faith is not where ours is, is, is just, it's just wrong. And so I pray, Lord, if, if, if any of us have, have done that, Lord, that you would help us to repent of it and you would help us to search our hearts, Lord, that we might humble ourselves before you and before others. I thank you for these, your people. I pray, Lord, your blessing over them. And I pray you continue to grow their faith. And as their faith grows, it becomes simpler and more childlike. Lord, we just believe 
We don't have to understand. We don't have to be able to explain it. We just simply believe. When those things come into our lives that we don't understand, that we don't like, we just simply trust. And Lord, when you call us to do something, we simply obey. Lord, help us to keep it simple. Lord, because we know that as we do that, the world will see you more clearly. They may not like it. They may not understand it. They may not accept it. But the world needs to see the truth. And it'll be lived out by people who walk in humility with childlike faith into a world that is dark and unloving and uncaring. And so I pray, Lord, equip your people, strengthen your people, empower your people through the power of the Holy Spirit by the, based upon the word of God and in the name of Jesus Christ that we would go forth from this place glorifying you in everything that we do and say. We praise you, Lord, for all that you are. And I do lift up your body, Lord, this, this group of people, Lord, for all of their cares, all of their concerns, all of their worries, all of their hurts, all of their, all of their grief, all of their different things that are going on, Lord. And we lift them up to you knowing that you know and that you care. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to cast all of those things at your feet and trust you believe you, hope in you, and wait for you. I thank you, Lord God, for your people, and I pray for your abundant blessing upon them, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we learn more about our Savior King and His Kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. It is our hope that these messages will help you grow in your faith, if you have any questions or there is anything we can do to help you with that, please do not hesitate to connect with us. Go to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways that you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. One of the ways we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. Send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word PRAY to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com give or text the word GIVE to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.